0: you're listening to a podcast from the media motel coming up this week in episode 553 exploding the song with rem the wrangle between artists and venues over merchandise
1: and what to do when your pop stardom fades that's all coming up after manic street breaches and found that soul Of their 33 top 40 hit singles in the UK, this from 2001 and their album Know Your Enemy. As a single, it reached number nine in the UK top 40. Manic Street Preachers and Found That Soul.
0: I love that. It's a really underrated track of theirs, I think. A bit of sort of slightly, there's still very much going on, aren't they? So I can't really call it late period of the Manic Street Preachers, given that they have been proceeding for 21 years after this was released. But uh-huh. I think it's a, a bit of a lost classic of theirs. I love that.
1: Exactly. Welcome along to episode 553 of the Parish Council. I'm Terence Dackham. And well, is the question that everyone is asking. So let's just get to the heart of this. Is she taking over from Joe Root as England's cricket captain? <laughs> let's find out. It's Juliet Harris.
0: I mean, obviously, my sympathies to Mr Root, um, having said that, there was very much a need for, you'll like this, Terence, root and branch reform oh, of I the England cricket set oh, up. Yes, bails, indeed. Um, you can't read really bow on, Mike. You just have to to go away. Mm. And then come back again if you're going to bail. But anyway, mm. no, sadly, I did not get the call. Um, um, having said that, the England women's cricket setup seems a much happier place. So I'm wondering if I might pop, lo- pop uh. along and join them at some point. That would be nice. Anyway, hello, everyone.
1: Now, I'm guessing a certain number of listeners are going to say, and you may be amongst them, Jules. Um, You didn't know about Song Exploder? Where Mm. have you been? Um, (laughs) But indeed, I was unaware of the Song Exploder podcast until this week. It turns out that it's a fascinating podcast running since 2014, in which featured musicians give an insight into the creative processes of forming a particular song. And uh, it also transpires that Netflix popped along in 2020 to finance a television version of the podcast. Mm. So this week, we've been looking at this Netflix show, um, which happily is tidally edited to 26 minutes, which is yes, very neat. And we watched season one, episode three, which featured the members of REM describing how they made Losing My Religion, which, by the way, I had always taken the title literally, but in fact, it was absolutely revealing. And Michael Stipe explained it actually as a mm. sort of metaphor in the southern states for yes. exasperation or even losing your temper. Anyway, let's. let's. Let's hear a brief clip, 30 seconds or so, of Losing My Religion. I wonder if you agree with Wesley Morris of the New York Times, who describes the Song Exploder show as exhilarating TV.
0: I found it very interesting. Now, I was, as you rightly say, I was familiar with Song Exploder previously. I was a big fan of the podcast. I was a bit behind on it, like I am with all of my podcasts, it would seem. But um, yeah, I I listened to Song Exploder for a few years. And so I've always been a fan of it as a sort of an audio podcast. So I was really interested Mm. to see how it translated onto sort of TV and and visual form rather than audio form. I've always really liked it. I like the conceit of it. I like the unpacking of the difference parts and the talking about how the the constituent parts run together to make a whole i did actually know about the meaning of losing my religion and losing your call but then i am a huge rem fan of read various books about them so i'm by no means an ordinary sort of subject for this i loved this this episode i thought it was very telling very heartening but also and we've had this conversation before when talking about things that we've reviewed previously but there's a bit of a there's a bit of a, um, a, a an opposite thing going on here in that we've said previously oh you can't get any truth out of things when it's an official when it's an official version so we've mm-hmm. said you know the problem with, with some of the footballer films we've seen is that they are sanitized versions yeah. so you don't get anything interesting weirdly the, the converse applies here and that the reason why this was so good is that all four members of REM were available to talk about it i was and all, surprised and all by to, that. Uh, I know I was. I, I didn't expect to see Bill Berry, and then we did see him. And they were all happy to talk. They all spoke fondly of each other, which I thought was very heartening, Um, as, which just goes to show that they – well, you'll like this one again, Terence. They just ran out of time. They didn't yeah. fall out. But sorry. But, um, but I I've, I've, I've really enjoyed all of their contributions. And for something like this, where you're breaking down each individual part, you really do need the people that wrote those parts and the people that played on those parts to talk about them, I think. I think it gives you a, an extra level of perspective. I thought it was really good. It was a good length, like you say. It was well constructed. It was not a dissimilar length to the the Song Exploder podcast. They're all about sort of eighteen to twenty minutes, depending on 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 what it is. They always play the thing in full at the end, which I think is great. However, where I think the the visual version missed a trick compared mm-hmm. to the audio is the, so So they were talking about the song and they were talking about the video to the song and how that was kind of the, how that was a, a they felt a reasonable contributor to how wildly successful the the song came because REM were a successful band up until that point but it was this song that seemed to launch them and they all acknowledged that it seemed to launch them into the stratosphere they played the song at the end but they didn't play the video they played they played like their own sort of visuals to it which was which was fine and i and I enjoyed that and it was good to hear the song but if you're doing that was a um,
1: strange th- thing to do strange choice. yes
0: i mean maybe they couldn't get them maybe it's rights related but then they had shown bits of the video um when when talking when when in the in the documentary there were snatches they talked about the video, and then there was a snatch of them in 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 the, in the room playing it in the video and i wondered why you know, maybe they maybe it was too expensive to get the rights to the whole thing. I don't know, but this is made by Netflix. So I was just surprised that they that having made reference to the video and how important it was and what a big song this was for REM's career and how the video was a part of that to then not play the video at the end when you've got the option to do so because it's visual rather than audio. I thought that was a bit strange. That was the only thing that jarred for me. Otherwise, I thought it was a good. A good translation of, of an excellent format for podcast and, and I thought it worked well. But if you're going to, if you've got the visual to play with, why not play the, the actual video that you've been talking about at the end with the song? That would have made much better sense.
1: Yeah, excellent, excellent point. That didn't occur to me, I must say, but you're spot on.
0: The only I mean, thing I th- that irked me about it, otherwise I liked it.
1: Yeah. Well, I found this 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 show uh, thoroughly absorbing and mm. I intend to watch more and to now listen to their audio podcast. Cause yeah, it's absolutely right. fascinating. Yeah. Stylishly presented by Rishikesh Herway, who lets the artists tell their tale, which is yes. crucial. You know, it wasn't about yeah, really him. Good. It was about the artist, which is brilliant. Um, absolutely fascinating to see and hear the work that went into the construction of Losing My Religion, which Michael Stipe d- described as uh, the creation of a character who's totally fabricated based on textbook insecurity. But we, we learned that the, that the whole track, which again is, is how different from today when uh, it takes 16 songwriters mm. three months to construct a chorus, but it was, it was recorded in a day with two additional hours given aside to add the strings. Um, none of the other band members seemed to feel particularly warmly about Losing My Religion, but Stipe said it was one of the favourite uh, songs they ever wrote, and that it mm. also that it changed him immensely. And he's also said, yes. uh, which is again a reflection on how fame can just sort of belt you. Mm. Round the chops because the video got played so often on TV at the time when MTV was ruling the world. Yes. That, um, he knew he was famous because suddenly he was walking on Fifth Avenue and people kept recognising
0: him and coming mm. up to him. Which um, made it even stranger that they didn't show the video, really. But still, yeah, I I indeed. I completely agree. It was it was interesting how the four of them had slightly different perspectives on it, which was quite good. And how when they were talking about how the record company wanted shiny happy people, and one of yes. them, I can't remember who it was, said, "I'm the only member of REM that doesn't have a massive problem with being embarrassed I I, by I, that I, song." I love
1: that track. I didn't mm. understand it. It's it's just REM with uh, you know a B fifty two. What's
0: exactly. the problem? Yeah. I mean, it's, but then having said that there's always a pattern of bands seem to disowning songs that are very commercial or, or very sort of maybe they feel it's slight i don't know there's a similar mm-hmm. thing where the band blur hate the song bang which was an early single of theirs and 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 sort of famously dismiss it and i really quite like bang i think it's very pleasant so so you know maybe the there's thing a with shiny here. happy
1: people it was obvious. it was a sort of pastiche and a, a kind of jokey kind of thing um but nonetheless it worked really well just a good you know pop song what, what mm. you know, what's your problem i mean i found it um interesting how some of the most famous lines in pop music get embedded into our memory mm. but losing my religion i thought had it, it really this quite amused me because it had one crucial word uh, michael stomach revealed changed at the very last minute because originally mm. it was that's me in the corner that's me in the kitchen which yes. just doesn't work as well as No, Spotlight. it doesn't. It, it, and it's amazing how our entire perspective of a song can change just by the odd word, um, just almost on a whim being changed at the last moment.
0: Absolutely. Those kind of moments, those mm-hmm. moments where something is tweaked at the very last minute. And the thing I also liked about it was how... If, just the story it was just a really good story the mm. idea that REM were well, reasonably successful they wanted to do something different and actually you can sort of see why the record company were a bit tin at first because as they said it doesn't really have a chorus this song and the mandolin is the lead instrument yeah. it's a very sort of it's a weirdly low-key song but yet yeah, it seems to have tapped intellectually and sort of intellectually and emotionally into people in a way that perhaps others in, in a way maybe that shiny has Happy people wouldn't have done. So weirdly, the band were probably right to to argue that that was the first single, and also it goes to show how things have changed. I think in in that they won, didn't they? The band won, and it was you know, and it was released as a single. and And you think now, would that happen now? Probably not. No, the suits would probably win now. Although, having said that, R.E.M. were at a point where they released five or six really quite successful, increasingly successful albums, hadn't they? So it wasn't like they were some new you know new kids on the block and they didn't know anything i suppose they they could argue that they'd had a number of albums that were successful so they did know what they were doing
1: yes absolutely now song exploder is available Mm. as an audio item wherever you obtain your podcasts but the television version that we've been talking about there are eight episodes it's currently available on netflix
0: Mm, very much recommended it's great coming right up
1: the ongoing dispute about banned merchandising Mm. and gigs that's right after Santigold
0: that song for ages before actually knowing what that song was because it seems to get used a lot as backing music on things and it might be you might be listening to it and thinking ah oh, so that's what that is um really very much like santi gold i've picked some or santo gold as she was originally known um i've picked some a couple of her tracks before previously i think but um i really like that um that was taken from master of my make-believe which was her second studio album um and it was uh, released as the lead single from that i believe um the songwriters include her and uh, nick zinner who was the guitarist of the aas which i did not know until i looked mm-hmm. into this certainly for, for this and it's been used on all sorts of things it's been used on a Honda advert, Direct Line insurance company, all sorts of things, and various things on on TV. It, you might have seen it in the trailer for Unorthodox, the Netflix series from 2020. But I'm a huge fan of that. And uh, Santi Gold generally, um, the, the Guardian's Michael Craig described it as an absolute corker. All sleek new wave keyboards mixed with frantic bursts of, bursts of guitar and Santi Gold's intriguingly emotionless delivery. Well, when you put it like that, it's great, isn't it?
1: <laughs> Very. T- talented woman, uh, written dozens of songs for other artists too. Mm. Very good. We might feel we should stand shoulder to shoulder with bands, artists who find they are now being charged for a, 25 percent cut of Mm. merchandise sales by venues most musicians of course are only just seeing a return to performing live after what a two year hiatus so to suddenly find venues are demanding a 25 percent share of t-shirt and cd sales is causing a great deal of friction Mm. Currently, the focus is on venues run by AMG uh, that includes all the O2 places in London and artists signed to UMG, which is Universal, the largest record label in the world. Mm. Many artists are arguing that they're unhappy with the payments they receive from placing their music on streaming services. So, live performances and associated mm. merchandise sales, that's their main source of income. So, we all stand together against this 25% uh, affair. Or do we? Because I'm putting forward a counter argument. We're regularly hearing people, gig goers and venues, um, and indeed our Juliet, telling us of. The decline in the number of music venues available, mm. would be right, right, you know, here we have to highlighted the dwindling number of uh, opportunities for artists to perform. Everyone must know, I think, especially if pub-sized, uh, smaller venues in towns near them that have closed in the last, I don't know, say, ten years. Mm. Now, the, my point is, if I took a market, stall, uh, a market stall sorry, in any town in the UK to sell my band's merchandise, I'd have to pay a rental, uh, a mm. fee to the council to be able a to pitch do so. A
0: pitch fee, yes, probably. Yeah, exactly.
1: Similarly, if I took a pitch at a car boot sale, again, a pitch fee, I'm expected to pay to do that. So, Jules, my question, my point is, it, it isn't always as straightforward as it seems.
0: No, I do. I do take that point. It's, it's an interesting one to make. Um. This article, um, Aiman Ford has written for the Guardian, is a very interesting one, looking at the sort of mechanics of it. Um, extraordinary story to begin it with, which um, Dry Cleaning, who well, I think we you you introduced mm. me to them. You, you, yeah. you played one of their tunes, it's a very uh, sort of involving video. We talked about it, and their album was probably my album of last year, which pairs very well with my single of last year, Dry Cleaning and Wet Legs. So those yeah. are the two things that <laughs> seem to go together quite well. But anyway, they apparently played the O2 Forum in London in early March. Um. Uh, Dice the ticketing company told fans that you look counter to what you would usually expect they wouldn't be selling any merchandise at the venue and instead a pop up merchandise store would be operating at the Abbey Tavern a nine minutes walk away. Amazing. Now you think that isn't a huge huge risk, isn't it? Yeah. Part of the reason why lots of merchandise is sold by bands is that you wander out of the venue. Like when we went to see Goldfrapp the other week, you wander out of the venue and there is a trestle table with some mugs and t-shirts and whatever on it. We were hope I was hoping to get a Goldfrapp tea towel to add my collection of bands selling tea towels to their middle-aged audiences unfortunately, <laughs> as my friend put it, Alison Goldfrapp is apparently too cool for tea towels. So we did not have a Goldfrapp tea towel. I've consoled myself with the Pixies tea towel and the Jesus and Mary Chain tea towel that I already own. But anyway, you would usually that would usually be an easy thing to sort of do, wouldn't it? Having said that, they claim whether this is true or not, I don't know. They claim the the uh the person that that manages dry cleaning says we probably sold the same number of units but we were able to retain the 25 percent it worked out better for us financially which is interesting the idea that you have fans that are willing to walk 10 minutes away Mm -hmm. to buy merchandise from there instead who knows if that's if that's a thing um i think the the issue with this is and is that um so tim Burgess has done a bit of research into this and there's a they've produced a list of venues that will waive fees and that that includes venues of all sizes so it includes venues of of 10 to, uh, sorry, to 100 to 200 people capacity but also venues in excess of a thousand pounds i think that aluna francis who was formerly of aluna george makes a fairly good point here when she says that um when when we talk about and you say about pitch fees yes i get the point about paying a pitch mm. fee but she also says and i think this is a pretty good argument a venue has its own turnover of physical goods that will bring cash in she says you've got alcohol and the door that's measurable and reliable it does feel like creaming off the top of the money generated from merch from the artist which i could sort of understand it looks like some venues are using this problem as an opportunity to poach acts from rivals because you know if you don't if you don't charge commission on merchandise so, so it's become a bit of a sort of a a war i mean merchandise is quite a um is quite a it, it's a bit of a money spinner for artists and i think it's it's maybe you sort of feel like it's something that's very attached to that artist really perhaps rather than necessarily attached to the general sort of thing as a whole it does to me it seems a little bit um it does seem a bit contrary to be to be sort of trying to if, if you know if you're taking if you're a venue and you're taking the bar you'll take i mean it all comes down to what contracts are negotiated between the bands and the venues ultimately which is a boring answer but probably right but if if the venue is taking a bar take a door take you know that i don't know how ticket sales but i work but i presume they are split to be taking a percentage of the merchandise as well does does feel a bit much to me and it's I find it very the, the most interesting thing that's come out of this is the idea that 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 if what they're saying is true, that banned dry cleaning moved their merchandise stall mm. nearby and it still and still it, it apparently worked. That was the most surprising thing of all of that for me, because I would have thought that would have just not happened at all maybe they're not being you know may, maybe they're, they're being a bit generous in their accounting there I don't know but if they're not that is really interesting I think so I see your point about the picture but mm. having said that I am rather minded to swing towards just Jules says I'm rather mm. minded to swing towards Aluna Francis good point that there are other income streams for the venue here that that don't reach the artists. so you know to to take um, as much uh, 25% feels like a large take as well really I think that you know 10 to 15% would be a little bit fairer for me I think if it has to happen at all
1: I think I'm just on a passing note, uh, a practical note, how does mm. the venue police it? They must yes. have to have a person monitoring the sales they must therefore somebody placed by the by the till or the box where the money goes into to keep account of it, which the cost of that having that person there must come out of the twenty five percent so that 's a bit bizarre in itself mm. um of course, banned merchandise we 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 know is often what eye-wateringly expensive yes so yes perhaps that of course the other thing of course is that 25 percent many bands and understandably will pass that 25 percent on to us hapless consumers anyway because mm. if you're happy to pay let's say 40 pounds for a t-shirt you'll probably pay 50 pounds for it and there's wow. the, the mm. money soaked soaked in that way but i don't know how widespread this is but a friend of mine is in a, a small band in the states right told me that it's common practice in america at at uh, venues for the deal to be turned round and the promoter and venue If you like, own the merchandise, and they pay 30% to the artist, which is a kind of complete reversal of bizarre. Mm. Um, Currently, Paul McCartney um, three uh, T-shirts uh, are 30 quid and hmm. Rolling Stones T-shirts are 30 to 40 pounds on the merchandising front, which seems incredibly excessive to me. But maybe I'm out of touch. Mm, uh, I, mean, see, I
0: probably franchises. wouldn't pay that my, myself. No. But th- this is why I'm sticking with my tea towels and mugs, because they're a little bit more economic. I think that the, the, the biggest jaw dropper moment I've ever had at a merchandise stand was at Bed and Sebastian at the Delaware Pavilion. And there they, they had a lot of merchandise like loads because they just re-released all their albums on vinyl. So they had all of those and they had a full sort of, and Ben and Sebastian have always been quite fun with their merchandising Mm -hmm. and their t-shirts always been good. And they've always been really, really interesting. And they had this beautiful looking scarf. Um, that was i can't remember what was in it but it looked great and i remember accidentally making everyone at the merchandise merchandise stand laugh and i felt a little bit sorry for the bloke afterwards and i did say to him when we were on our way out i'm sorry i didn't mean to embarrass you and he was he was nice (laughs) about it but i said i'm wondering could i have a scarf please and he said yeah sure here you are it's 40 pounds And I said, I said, laughing, could I not have a scarf, please? And everybody around me laughed. But I just thought, for goodness sake, forty quid for a scarf, really? So, so yes, like you say, some, some venues price or some bands perhaps price their merchandise at more accessible points than others The i i'm quite a fan of the lower cost options of merchandise nowadays so the tea towel the mug and particularly the tote bag i'm a fan of of tote bags from mm. bands which perhaps shows my age more than anything else but um, it's possible to have a range of sensible merchandising op- options out there so um so yes be be more be more, you know, Pixies with your tea towels rather than Bell and Sebastian with your forty pound scarves, please, please, uh, bands.
1: I'm past buying band t-shirts and so on these days, mm. but I do have my Kate Bush 2014 oh, poster yes. on the wall here, which Brilliant. I got at the Hammersmith gig. And That's absurdly, great. the the last tour t-shirt I ever bought was the Kate Bush one, but I've, mm. it's never been worn. It's like a family treasure oh, in, the, lovely. in the wardrobe. It's,
0: uh, you should frame that as well, I think. <laughs> it's, uh, post, posters are good. I have a, a poster that I bought from a Maximo Park gig um, at the Delaware again, and all of the band members signed it and it's framed in my... But they were sold as signed posters. And I've struggled to remember how much that was now, but it wasn't very much. It was like 20 quid or something. And it was an A2 art print and it's really nice. And you do think, you know how it's not difficult for them to sit there and sign a load of posters, which they did and and it's and it's really good, so there is a way look you know with posters and things to sell art that's a, that's affordable oh literally art that's affordable mm. to fans, and I do think some bands are more cynical than their merch and and it? it pains me to to ding bell and Sebastian like this but um I always enjoy buying merch from stands that are run by the band. I had a lovely moment when I went to see brit um not british sea power um uh, public service broadcasting on oh, number yeah. three. I And I know that British Sea Power aren't British Sea Power no. anymore to see Power, but, but another three-named three, a three named band at the time. I went to see, um, probably said it was broadcasting at the Dome in Brighton and it was excellent. The support act was a brilliant woman called Jane Weaver. I think we've played some of her music oh, on the podcast yes. before. She's great. Um, I went to the merch stand afterwards to buy one of her vinyl and didn't have change and she served me and <laughs> rooted around in her handbag to find a £5 oh, note, yes. which she originally found, the handbag having been handed to her by her husband, who was also oh. involved in the tour. So... That was a very enjoyable experience. Absolutely. So, um, so no, big fan of bands running their own merch, particularly when you don't realise who they are. I bought a a a Kinney T-shirt off a woman running a merch stand, who then uh, promptly got on stage to play the drums with Sleeta Kinney because it was Janet (laughs) Weiss. So, so I'm always a fan of bands doing their own merch. That is great.
1: Coming right up, what happens to pop stars when the glow of success flickers Mm. out? That's next after Wallows. Hey
2: there, safe travels, free day. I unravel, simple. Words in might, kill me. Let's spend the night. Through links virtual aerobics, yeah watch my great and my sidekick. I'm not too good, but I try my best. Like that, I've like been in one night, leaving doesn't feel right. We can live a life like that. I love how you move like that. I love how you kiss like when we are together. I can be your side like that. I your, like your, like like, like. your side like that. Let's spend the night doing some virtual aerobics and watch my great body at my sidekick. I'm not too I try my best, but i
1: They're a band from Los Angeles and they played Coachella last weekend. Mm. Uh, this was a single from their 2020 EP Remote. I, I like them very much, Wallows and Virtual Aerobics.
0: That was new to me and I enjoyed that. Thank you for keeping Thank you, Modern Terrence, for keeping me down with the kids. I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> well, Wallows is still at the early stage of their career. And at the moment, their traje- trajectory is upwards. Um mm a time when nobody in the band I suspect is even thinking about a day when either they can no longer stand the side to each other or the now clamouring public no longer Mm. buy the music or come to the gigs. It's a a fact of musical careers that rarely is anticipated really, unless you're Paul McCartney, the stones or Springsteen that day will arrive. Pop stars who find they are no longer pop stars. You've really got two ways to go. Mm. You can, Try and cling on to your old persona and attempt to bluff it out uh, as you claim benefits or accept the curtain has fallen and do something else. Sometimes... um as as well but I mean perhaps rarely the celebrity ship might return and sweep you up again Mm. because I remember in the mid-1980s bumping into Jar Wobble um, working as a a, a ticket inspector at Covent Garden Tube Station and now he's back as a full-time touring musician and and, and, you know quite well revered and um, even more name-droppy in the 90s I remember sitting at uh, at the next table to um, Kevin Rowland in a cafe in Liston Grove who was telling everybody within earshot that he was homeless and was just Mm. uh, hanging around waiting for the job centre in Listen Grove to open. So it can all go wrong very quickly. Absolutely. Nick Durden, the writer and journalist, he's written a new book on this very subject. It's called Mm. Exit Stage Left, The Curious Afterlife of Pop Stars. It's published this week. Um, George, there's something compellingly sad about artists who no longer hear the roar of the crowd, no no matter how stoically they carry on with their lives.
0: Absolutely, and Stoic's a good word. It's used by by Nick Durden in this. The, the, there's a long extract published that's been published in the Guardian advertising this book, which is a brilliant advert because everyone I know that's read this article now wants to go and read this book. It's it's been very well received, I think. And he Nick describes these people as true Stoics in terms of how they sort of carry on. He spoke fifty people spoke or sort of fifty acts spoke to him for this book. It seems sort of remarkable the amount of mm. material that he's got. And there is something you know, compellingly sad, but also you, you admire the people that have suffered these sadnesses or keeping going. The, the thing that really, really got me was Suzanne Vega's story here. Oh. In the, it was 1990. Um, she'd had success for three years by this point. Mm. She says, by, you know, she, she took a while to get going in the 80s, very much dominated by, you know, the likes of big pop stars like Madonna doing that huge glossy thing. And Suzanne Vega's story, uh, sort of music is a lot more low-key and a lot more sort of singer-songwriter confessional but she says but by 1987 every door was open to me every gig I did sold out so in 1990 she announces her most ambitious tour yet so it's rather than the usual just you know an acoustic guitar and a single spotlight she had a set designer trucks and buses a crew a backing band caterer backing singer woman to do the clothing she said this was a big deal for me on the tour's opening night in New York the venue was just a third full oh. she she said, I thought, where's the rest of the audience? Maybe they're still out in the, in the lobby. And this says here there was no rest of the audience. They'd already moved on. Vega hadn't actually done anything wrong here, but she'd done things a bit too right. The industry had taken note of her early success, reminding them of the marketable power of a singer in touch with her emotion, and so had invested in a new batch, Sinead O'Connor, Tanita DeCaram, Tracy Chapman. And it says here, these artists rendered the scene's godmother abruptly superfluous. Vega's tour, Hemorrhaging Money, was cut short. When she arrived back at JFK, she looked out for the car. Her record label would always send a collector, but there was no car, not anymore. I took a taxi, she said. But like other people, she didn't throw in the towel simply because others had come along and stolen her thunder. She she pivoted towards cult status, which um, means that she has a loyal fan base that still sustains her today. She still plays gigs in smaller venues that do sell out. She still releases records. And she says there are benefits of staying in your lane. Would I like another hit? I wouldn't say no, but I'm not going to chase it. And I think that's a really, healthy Mm -hmm. attitude and perhaps it's the idea of cutting your coat to suit your cloth the idea that that nothing lasts forever that if you do experience big success apart from a very few cases there is no guarantee that that will continue forever but if you want to make this your career if you want to continue with this if you want this to be your life's work then you just can't be precious about the idea that you're not a big big star anymore and it is perfectly possible even in today's you know shrunken margins it is possible to sustain a career at a more sustainable level I suppose and Suzanne Vega I think is a good example of that um it's very um I I found this so interesting the different people that they spoke to um there were some people that wanted to um, to sort of keep doing things and there some people that, that ran away completely. Um, it says here that um, Rashi Murphy navigated the end of her pop, duo um is now, I think, pretty successful as a rather idiosyncratic solo artist. And she said admit, she moved to Ibiza to focus on two things, motherhood and the Mediterranean. And she had this lovely quote, sometimes it's nice to just relax, you know, she says. So, uh, So, you know, sometimes there are there are different reasons why people take time off. Billy Bragg talks about taking time off because, um, well, because his sort of whole raison d'être was, you know, protesting against Tories and the right in 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 the eighties, and Margaret Thatcher was toppled, and so he took time off when she was toppled, just simply because, you know, he he he, you know, he had kids and and kind of leased himself back into music, you know. But he didn't have any, he didn't, you know, it was like his reason for for his artistic driving career had suddenly disappeared. So it's really Lisa Mafia talks about him. Um, I thought it was interestingly about the, the demise of the So Solid Crew and how their success, which was wild in its kind of, you know, I remember them turning up at the Brit Awards and there was just sort of champagne and gold everywhere. And, and what happens once you move past that? I think there's, as you say, there's something really interesting in there's a sadness, but also an aberration in, in how lots of these individuals have kind of fashioned a new life for themselves or, or fashioned a different version of the life they had. I'm really looking forward to reading this book. It sounds great
1: i think the whole x-factor business has escalated the star one mm. day and back to one of the crowd the next day with its promise of uh what should we say instant stardom but which is followed very quickly by anonymity um for every harry styles uh, mm. i've been doing some sort of looking into this this, this week the research i suppose there's an andy abraham who was runner-up in 2005 now back working as a refuse collector marcus collins runner-up to little mix now an estate agent. But as we know, it's not just X Factor people who find their direction their direction away from the stage. I, I was reading this week about Zia mm. McCain from the Dandy Warhols. He's now yes. also an estate agent. Mark wow. Feely from Westlife. He runs a catering van at festivals. <laughs> nice. Um after leaving the Supremes, Cindy Birdsong became a nurse. But most famously of all, of course, we've got Pete Best, who, ousted from the Beatles, yes. went on to work for Job Centre Plus for many years and yes. you know, rose up through the, the ranks of the civil service. Um, I think no matter what direction you take, it must be a peculiar feeling, though, to go from adoring crowds to selling houses or serving chips mm. from a van at festivals.
0: Yes, it must be strange. There's a, there's a nice sort of. Um, I think that sort of the the contradiction at this of, of, you know, whether you can make a new life or not is is nicely served by this sort of story about Natalie Merchant uh, who was in 10,000 Maniacs. She grew tired of being a marketable commodity, it says in this piece. She quit for the quieter life of being a solo artist and was then, as it says here, duly qualified when her debut album which was Tiger Lily came out in 1995 and sold 5 million copies and Mm. she ended up on the same treble again. Um. says the next time she tried to retire, she did so more forcefully she now teaches arts and crafts to underprivileged children in new york state which is admirable and she says i look at people like bob dylan and paul mccartney continuing to tour and i think to myself if i were you i'd just go home and enjoy my garden it's a question of temperament clearly though she then goes on to say um they ask her if she's entertaining the idea of new music and she says maybe my daughter is off at college now so i do have more time to myself so maybe maybe for some people it's something that you can never quite truly leave i don't know but it's it's really interesting how you know how there are some people that are willing just to walk away and and do other things. And there are other people like Suzanne Vega who are happy with doing things at a sort of a a more middling level than they once were. But they've still managed to carve out a career which they can just have more low key. And I admire that.
1: And I think we both say that this book by Nick Durden is worth uh, oh, exploring. Yes. Really Exit Stage Left, The Curious Afterlife of Pop Stars. And as we said earlier, it's published this week. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening this week as well. Good to have you along.
0: Yes, I, as ever, I echo the sentiments echo. of my learned friend. Yes. And Jules,
1: you're just everywhere on <laughs> media in the coming week from radio to television.
0: Yeah, it's extremely embarrassing that I'm having another moment of of media. I say ubiquity. I'm on two different platforms, which for me counts as ubiquity anyway. I'll continue to do my radio show for Noisebox Radio, which is great. Noiseboxradio.com on a Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. doing smooth sailing. You can listen along there to the sort of. The tried and tested brand of Yacht Rock, M.O.R., Classic Pop, all that sort of thing, um, which which, you know, is is relaxing and uplifting. That's the brief that we kind of go for. Um, also, as as you rightly mentioned, I will be appearing on Channel Five's Eggheads this week as part of my team, the Pink Flamingos, excellence women. That was a, a pleasure to spend time with my pals. And we'll be on at half past six on Channel 5 on Friday, the 29th of April. You can see us taking on the Eggheads and see how we got on.
1: And my favourite band from the so-called Scar revival era to play us out
0: yes i'm glad the beat are very underrated they don't often i mean a, a lot of the two-tone bands are great and i love the specials and the selector and all that sort of stuff but they don't often get written up as much and i think that's a shame because they had they did a huge range of music that was often very thoughtful and perhaps a bit low-key but i i really love their sound and of course every bank holiday monday always becomes skank holiday monday for me i always listen to a lot of reggae mm. and ska on the whole bank holidays and it was lovely to enjoy this song and 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 just you know the 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 I never know how to pronounce anyway the the whatever the, the, the you know the, the back catalogue shall we say of the beat I I think this is great uh, this is the beat from 1982 and this is save it for later. i so been listening to a Parish Council production.